Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch podcast. This is episode 45. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always. Joined, uh, I'm just going to start calling you my co-host, Chuck, because you're the one that that loves <laughs> or is willing to do this. <laughs> so I'm joined again by my co-host, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, it's been a little while. How uh, How is life? Good. Life is actually uh, very lovely. You know, we were just discussing it before we began, and I have to say that where I am is uh, 10, 12 degrees cooler than it was last week, so we're happy. Uh, I gather you guys are continuing to to cook on the left coast. You know, it just is what it is. I, I try to tell myself it's just part of part of the summer out here, baby, and I'm going to get through it, and then... Yeah. Uh, you know, it gets here and I'm like, I can't stand this. I need to move to Alaska. That's where, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're all moving. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Yes. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, maybe not Alaska, but somewhere, somewhere cooler climbs, let's say. But in any case, we're here to talk about uh, some science and we've got two uh, intriguing stories as always. These are uh, very, very relevant to public health, as most of these articles are that we write, Chuck, given the the name of our organization. So here we go. First up, the World Health Organization's dysfunction on aspartame leads to unnecessary consumer fear. This is a great uh, kind of a rundown story by Susan Goldhaber, who's our resident toxicologist. And then we have another story from Dr. Dinnerstein called The Emperor of Ultra Processed Foods Has No Clothes. And this is a great look at a uh, what you call a contrarian study. So we'll get, get into that in a minute. Uh, let me read this, uh, this introduction here uh, from, from Susan's story, which is really good. I'm sure people have seen the news about aspartame, the artificial sweetener, and uh, some of the comments that the World Health Organization has made, some contradictory comments. So, so Susan writes, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer recently concluded that the popular artificial sweetener aspartame is possibly carcinogenic to humans, an alarming conclusion because of all the foods that aspartame is used in. But then she concludes there's another organization. They're called the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives, and this is also affiliated with WHO, and they say that aspartame is safe to consume in the the amounts that people actually consume it. So, Chuck, if you could, you know, pretend that I have no idea what this is about and give me just a brief introduction to what what's the controversy here. Well, the controversy, I think, really gets down to um, what Susan then goes on to talk about in her opening paragraph, which was that the uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, um, classifies chemicals based on how hazardous they may be. Can they possibly cause cancer? And within that rubric, they determine that aspartame, based on some data that we can argue back and forth about, is possibly, possibly carcinogenic. So possibly is the key word in there because... It's possible for a lot of things. In fact, if you go back and you look at IARC's work on uh, classifying chemicals, of the 900 substances that they've looked at since their inception, they've only found one that was not carcinogenic. Everything else has had some degree of carcinogenicity to it. So possibly, I think, in IARC's world means any kind of possible case. Uh, the other organization under the WHO umbrella, the, the Joint Expert Committee on Food Additives, I, I don't even know how to pronounce that otherwise, um, is tasked with the idea of determining the risk of getting cancer, meaning if you eat 
uh, this particular chemical, in this case asp aspartame, uh, in normal amounts, what is your what is your risk of getting cancer? And they conclude that while yes, IR may be correct, it may possibly be a carcinogen. That in the amounts that normal people would take, it poses no risk. And because, as we've talked innumerable times, um, if it bleeds, it leads uh, in the media. They chose to accent the part about the fact that it could be possibly, uh, possibly carcinogenic. And that's really ultimately what it comes down to. But um, there's, as Susan points out, a, a major inconsistency in how the WHO as an umbrella organization looks at this and the the problem is that they should have dealt with this problem in-house and made some kind of a unified statement rather than making a statement that they knew would play well uh, to the press and show that they were continued to watch out for us and therefore they continue to deserve the funding that they get rather than zero in and see whether it was going to be a problem for us on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think um, somewhere along the way we were looking at the amounts that involved and, and, and as with most of the chemicals that they've identified, you know, if you eat 11 cakes a day or you know, 100 plus liters of diet soda, yes, there's a, a increasing chance that you may develop uh, a cancer. But nobody eats these levels uh, of these compounds. There is an interesting story that we we might be able to get into about um, the fact that IARC's conclusion was leaked before the JECFA's conclusion was. Because the plan was they were going to publish these as joint statements because IARC was unwilling to just incorporate their comments into uh, the expert report. And so they, they compromised and they said, okay, well, we'll release these together. And then IARCS, for some reason, was leaked. No one is exactly sure why that happened. I have my speculations. We can talk about that in a minute. But Susan makes a really good point. And she all, all she has to do here is just point to the classification for, for uh, that IARC uses. And right. aspartame falls into group 2B. Now, now, possibly carcinogenic to humans. That sounds alarming if you're a mother or if you're just a consumer. I mean, possibly. That means I, it could possibly give me cancer. But the requirements for this category, and this is a quote from my arc, limited or no evidence in humans, limited to insufficient evidence in animals. So if every news story about this was to come out and say, IARC finds insufficient evidence that aspartame causes cancer in humans, the controversy just falls away, right? But I've read exactly. a lot of news stories about this. None of them have mentioned this, I don't know, very pertinent detail to the results. So, so yes. what do you think about that? Oh, well, you know, as I said, that when I began, this really gets to, to how you categorize uh, and, and characterize things. And, and you're 100% on the money with that. If they had actually said what the definition was, even in the article, everything would have dropped away. But they don't. They just stick with the, the phrasing uh, that's used. And, and I, I'm finding more and more as I read things that when we start becoming concerned about the, the human biases in the all-too-human enterprise of science, that a lot of it comes down to how we define things and how we categorize things. Um, and this is a, another great example um, of how possibly, as I, as I said at the beginning, possibly, yes, you can't prove a negative, so 
by by definition almost anything is possibly a carcinogen and certainly by by the requirements that they put forward limited or no evidence i can find limited or no evidence in every case <laughs> that it's a carcinogen and therefore classified that way it, it it is as we've talked about uh it's a, a craziness a circular logic in crazy and here's uh, here's another important detail. This is also from Susan's story. She she points out that um, the JECFA looked at the same evidence that IARC did, and they actually looked at a. I'm pretty sure they looked at a bigger body of research because, and we should have mentioned this earlier. Um, the, this body, this expert body, they do a risk assessment. So they look at all the available evidence and they say, does this chemical actually cause cancer in the amounts? that people are, are exposed to it, and by what mechanism does that happen? So it's a much more detailed analysis. But nevertheless, they also looked at the evidence that IARC did, and based on that, they said, the evidence of an association between aspartame consumption and cancer in humans is not convincing. So again, that seems very, very clear here. And this controversy is being pushed all, all the more. I, I, you know, I, I'm a little flabbergasted. Right. You know, it's interesting and you posit it that way. So I think that one way to think about it is that IR deals with theory. Theoretically, could this cause cancer? Yes, theoretically it could. We have no evidence to show it. In fact, our evidence is limited or insufficient. And the other group, JECFA, maybe we can call them, um, deals with the practicalities of in, in real world situations, Will this cause a problem? And they come out with no no clear association. And the other thing that I was thinking about is the aspartame has been approved for nearly 50 years. So you would think that if there was an increase in uh, carcinogens, uh, certainly let's say liver, which is the only place where they found some minimal evidence in humans, that we would see a signal coming through of increasing cases. But we don't. So... Once again, it is uh, a data point. There's a conclusion reached uh, by, by individuals that at some level have a, a vested interest in saying possibly because that's, that's a big CYA cover yourself uh, clause <laughs> possibly because then you can never be held responsible in, in, in either direction. For what happens if you know if they say it's not carcinogenic and then years and years later something turns out to be, then they have some liability. There's no liability with possibly. It, you know, it's just it's ambiguous with possible means. Yes, it's a very good point, uh, and it, the, the the issue for for me at least as a consumer is that this leaves a lot of room for uh, lawsuits, and it leaves a lot of room for for people that are uh, up to no good, frankly, to mislead the public. And to sue comp food companies for no good reason, and just right. to waste waste people's time and resources. And and this again. Oh, sorry. Go ahead if you had something to add there. No, I was going to say you know because I watch old people TV. You know, I, I do <laughs> some network TV, and the ads by the attorneys are already there. They're already out gathering people for a class action suit. Yeah, and they will gather enough numbers. And as will always be the case, I, I guarantee this down the line, there will be a settlement. Um, of this case for a large amount of money, a third of which will go to the attorneys. Most of the people in the class action will not collect any money because, you know, you please fill out these two forms and we'll send you $1.50. So the bulk of the money will go to the attorneys. 
and they'll, they'll move on. It's, you know. Public health prevails once again. <laughs> public health in the courts. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, a couple other things here before we move on, and, and these are just, just important things for people to be aware of for, for their own risk and their own interest, I suppose. The FDA's, uh, it's called the acceptable daily intake, I believe. And this right. is the limit of aspartame that a person can can consume with expectation right. that nothing's going to happen. And that, that limit is 50 milligrams of aspartame per kilogram of body weight per day. So that would, in, or, in order to reach that, you would have to drink, uh, <laughs> or excuse me, an adult weighing about 185 pounds would have to drink 11 to 16 12 ounce cans a day of diet soda. Now, if I was if I was ambitious, I could get that done in a day, but I wouldn't keep doing it. It just would not be enjoyable to drink that much diet coke or whatever. Right. So, you know, you're not you're not in jeopardy anyone. I I don't know. It's it's just silly. Yeah. This is what the, this is what it's gotten down to. You know, we they they developed these things and I think that they it more from in, in the most cynical sense, I think they designed these things so that it can be picked up by the lawyers. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole world of class action suits, including, um, as Barbara, Dr. Ballar has been writing about, um, people doing expert testimony for big bucks. You know, testifying in court as to the, the problems with these chemicals. So it's, a, it's its own little ecosystem. And, and, and part of it is fed by uh, IARC. This is true. And and if you want to be as cynical as I am, everyone out there, um, there are uh, expert witnesses who have made a career out of testifying as plaintiff's witnesses and defense witnesses. So in one suit, <laughs> they, are rep- they will speak on behalf of the plaintiffs against a company that makes a product. And in the next lawsuit, they will speak in support of the company against another plaintiff. So it's you know, I mean, this is the scummiest behavior I can think of in, in the academic world, at least, you know, the fact that you're so, you know, whatever. Um, okay, final thing. This is a quote from the FDA. And this is rare, Chuck, as, as I'm sure you well know, uh, for, for one agency to come out and critique another agency's analysis. They generally don't do this. I, I, it would, it's probably some sort of professional courtesy, I would, I would suspect, usually. But the FDA came out here and they said, the FDA disagrees with IARC's conclusion that these studies support classifying aspartame as a possible carcinogen to humans. And what I think, since they since they approved aspartame in 1974, I would imagine that this is sort of a, uh, you know, they're defending their own work against, against the accusations that are no doubt developing that FDA is corrupt or they've been bought off or they're incompetent or whatever. So, you know, I, I don't know. This is uh, what, what else could you ask for to, to confirm that this chemical probably doesn't cause cancer? You're never going to show that it can't. <laughs> and they're having a problem with time showing that it can't. Well, there we sit. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, IARC's aspartame report debunked in 18 minutes or so. Uh, let's move on to your story, Chuck. This is a, a pet peeve of mine as well. Favorite topic. Uh, when it comes to nutrition. So your story is called The Emperor of Ultra-Processed Foods Has No Clothes. So let me read this introduction here, and then you can explain the the nitty-gritty. So you write, According to the common narrative, ultra-processed foods are evil, unhealthy, and unnatural. But a new contrarian study in the Journal of Nutrition demonstrates that a diet containing 91% ultra-processed foods was far healthier than the typical American diet, and get this, 
well aligned with dietary guidelines for Americans. When it comes to shaming and blaming ultra-processed foods, the emperor has no clothes. Very beautifully written, if I might add, Dr. Dinnerstein. Well, thank you. Thank um, now, you. now tell, tell us about this study, and may, maybe tell us what ultra-processed food is, just for the, the uninitiated, and then break the study down for us. There, ultra-processed foods have been held out as uh, the bad boy of nutrition for some time, and the current classification called the NOVA classification breaks down how foods are processed, starting with the least um, processed category, category one, which is just basically unprocessed, minimally processed foods, uh, a tomato that you buy, uh, a corn, <laughs> since it's in season. Um, and then they have varying degrees of processing to go along with. There's minimal processing. So, you know, um, Corn that's frozen, and you buy frozen corn, so that's minimally processed. That might be a category two, excuse me, category three. A category two uh, processed food is a food that's used in cooking. Um, so if you you know you have a spice that you dry, and that would uh, be a category two. But the bad boy, of course, is the category four, which are the foods that are processed or ultra processed, so that they are um, changed. Now, a lot of the ways that they're changed is to improve their shelf life because um, our food ch supply chains are getting increasingly long. If you want to have strawberries year-round, um, you either have to fly them in with a big carbon footprint or you have to process them in some way. Um, and so the ultra-processed foods are the, the ones that they've been most concerned about. Ultra-processed foods are all the foods that... Um, food companies have uh, played with to alter the amount of salt uh, and sweet in it because salt and sweet are two, two things that we key into um, when eating. They also uh, play with the food to impact its crunchiness, anything to make it more um, delectable and to have some kind of market um, differentiation. So the NOVA classification, which was developed in Brazil, has become really the standard by which people discuss things. And they say, you know, anything that's classified as a Category 4 uh, processed food by NOVA is de facto bad, just by being in that category alone. And that's why I like this study so much, is because they said, well, let's go out and see whether this is true. And they, the dietitians constructed a diet, a seven-day diet that had uh, things in it like... Uh, let me see what we got. A chicken sandwich, chili uh, on a baked potato, clam chowder, all things that are considered ultra-processed foods. Um, and they demonstrated that you could come up with a diet that was healthier than the American diet, the standard American diet, and was made up essentially of all of ultra-processed foods. And demonstrated quite clearly that if you're going to talk about the nutritional value of foods, how the food is processed is not... Uh, any indication of its healthfulness. Um, and as they, they, the researchers write, NOVA scores are not proxy markers for dietary quality. Oh, there's so much to say. I always feel like I have a lot to say, Chuck, but, but there really is a lot we could say here. The, the first thing that pops out to me is uh, all of the examples, and we've talked about some on the show, of people eating stuff that is supposedly very, very harmful and very, very fattening and losing a buttload of weight and improving their metabolic markers in all sorts of ways. So we've talked about the Duke rice diet where people are eating 200 to 300 grams of white rice a day and granulated sugar and fruit juice 
no vegetables, no meat. <laughs> and, and because, as you pointed out, because uh, foods like rice are bulking in their filling, that actually reduces the amount of calories that people uh, take in. And so they lose a bunch of weight. And then back in, I think it was 2010, you had that um, nutrition researcher at um, Kansas State who went on the so-called Twinkie diet. He's just eating snack cakes and candy. Um, and he lost weight and, again, improved his cholesterol. And, again, in, in all of these cases that you see, the key is uh, cutting off your calorie intake. You just limit your calories. If you combine it with with uh, exercise as well, you're even, you're even better off. Um uh, but I think these really nicely underscore that the, the emphasis on processed food is just baseless. Exactly. And, and, and they do it in a very nice way. And, and when you look at the comments on the article, there, there's people saying, I, I didn't know that that was a processed food. No. Oh, you know, because, you know, they, people just make an assumption that if it comes packaged in the, in the middle of the store, then it, it's bad for you. <laughs> um, the other thing that I, I found most interesting is they, they worked with uh, – something called the Healthy Eating Index, which is a scoring system by our USDA um, that tries to say uh, to make a statement about the nutritional quality of our diet. And it goes on a scale from 1 to um, 100. The diet that they came up with had a score in the range of about 86, which according to them is about a B. But the American diet uh, typically is at 59, which is in your D to F category. Uh, depending on how easy or greater you wish to be. And this is what I found the most fascinating. That has not budged in 30 years. <laughs> despite all the labeling, despite all the education, despite everything, uh, the American diet has not um, improved in any way uh, from the point of view of the nutritionalists. So maybe they're, they're taking the wrong tack. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that stuck out to me, and I like the way you put this again, you say uh, nearly three decades of cajoling, labeling, taxing, educating, blaming, and shaming have not moved the American diet closer to the guidelines. And I don't think we know how to do that, at least at a policy level, at least as a public health intervention. There's really mm -hmm. nothing we can do until you change the culture in a, in a healthier way. And I don't mean like crash dieting and trying to fit into your prom dress or whatever, because being fat is bad. That's the wrong way to approach it. But I think culturally, we just need to put more value on physical fitness and, and not being obese. And I, and I think that has to happen organically to use a word that I can't stand. It has to happen as, you know, people who have influence in the culture and maybe people with political power start to shift the way Americans think about it over time. I don't see another way to get there. What do you think? It's a, it's a dining room table to dining room table battle. Um, if you get to, you know, if we bring back, I'm, I'm so old, if you bring back the family meal uh, where everybody sits down to a, a one, two, three, four meals a week together, uh, I, I think that that's already a step in the right direction. Um, that this whole idea of eating on the run uh, sets us up for not only um, bad digestive problems, but eating a lot of extra calories because it takes about 20 minutes for your satiety signals uh, to begin arriving. So if you suck down your meal in 10 minutes, you can eat a whole lot more calories than if you had the same meal over 40 minutes. It just is. Now, that's, that's our our underlying physiology. So 
those are the kind of things that we need to do. But that that has to happen in a, in the home. That's not something that the, we can legislate or that we can label. Um, you know, and again, because I'm old, I will say that this goes long. This goes back to the to the times when we decided that in home economics and shop classes uh, and physical education classes were no longer necessary in school. So we started getting them out. Um, you know, I, I don't think we do a, a great job in our, our school system of teaching people the basics um, of, of how to live <laughs> in the world. I like the way you put it, dining room table, the dining room table. So I think I had it backwards, actually. I think it has to start with the family. It has to start in the home, and then it has to um, illuminate outwards or expand outwards. And I think there's actually a lot of social issues that are like that. If you look at something like um, you know, drug drug use or uh, out of wedlock uh, pregnancy and uh, you know, I, you know, s- mental health issues and so forth, like a lot of these have to start – at the micro level and then kind of bloom outward if we're going to fix them. And I, th- I think that's what's happening here. And let me, there's just one example that occurs to me. Um, and I've made this bef- this point before in my writing is that there's a lot of natural unprocessed foods that anyone would say are healthy, you know, like, like almonds, you know, nuts or, or dried fruit or a banana or whatever. I find if I'm not being mindful, I can sit down on the couch and I can polish out, polish off a bag of almonds and, uh, you know, 30 minutes if I, if, if I'm not careful. Right. And that's exactly. a lot of, a lot of fat and a lot of calories. Exactly. And I would gain weight if I ate like that all the time. And again, totally unprocessed, the almonds grow, they put mm-hmm. them in a bag and then they send them to the store. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah f- fascinating stuff. But, but I have to commend you. I mean, I know you're, you're towards the, the end of your career to, to put it, uh, Respectfully, I suppose, <laughs> and nice. it seems it it seems that you're you're one of the f- few people on this issue who just says, "Here's what the data is," and everyone believes the, r- the wrong thing, you know. So that's that's good. I mean, thank you for thank you for doing that. Not a lot of people will do that. My pleasure. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna call today there. Thank you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next week for episode forty six. In the meantime, follow us on social media. The organization is at ACSH Org. I'm at Cam J English. If you want to reach out to Chuck, tweet at the organization. We'll get the message to him, and he just loves interacting with everyone that writes to him because uh, strange people don't write to us. They're always well informed with thoughtful questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a lie. We get all kinds of fun stuff. Maybe one day we can. Uh, no, I don't think we can. the grab bag. Put the metal, the mailbag. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. We're done. Enough of my enough of my joking around here. Thank you all. As always, we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>